Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 79, September 19th to September 25th, 1862. Last week, we fought the Battle of Antietam. We will continue to talk through some of the fallout from this engagement moving forward through the coming weeks, because I think it is the turning point in the war. We will open up with the conclusion to that campaign this week, then head out west and talk about the Battle of Munfordville, which was last week, but obviously we were occupied, as well as the Battle of Iuka to close us out. Once again, and I know we've had a couple of these announcements, but the Patreon feed, there is a new episode for the month of September that has been posted already. That's going to be a movie review. It's going to be A Friendly Persuasion, which is a 1956 Gary Cooper movie and tackles, if not some of the events in our story, at least some of the kind of sentiments for the civilian population and those who are against the war. So there's a lot of interesting themes, I think, in it. Uh, So it's worth a watch, worth a listen, if you want to hear the synopsis of that. And it kind of ties into our story and how it does. So we will have that posted. And of course, your support for the show is greatly appreciated. On September 19th, 1862, there would be fought the Battle of Shepherdstown. Shepherdstown sits right across the river, Potomac River that is, from Henry Kidd Douglas's house, who wrote the memoir I Rode with Stonewall, being a member of his staff, and actually, I believe the youngest member of his staff as well. Now Lee did not want to give up on the campaign. If the Army of Northern Virginia was to winter in Maryland or Pennsylvania, It would go a long way in terms of acquiring foreign support and maybe go even further in the decline of general support for the war in the North. He would wish to have Stonewall Jackson explore options to attack on the 18th, which Jackson would not support, his men being totally depleted, as were the rest of the army. Retreat was going to be the best course of action, especially with elements of the 5th and 6th Corps being fresh and ready for action. Now, Lee was still hoping to maybe continue the campaign and re-enter Maryland, but either way you cut it, Virginia was his best shot. The Army of Northern Virginia would begin the march back to friendly territory in the dark, but they would not necessarily be going without harassment, as you may believe. Lee would leave as the commander of the rearguard, General William Pendleton, who was the commander of artillery for the Army of Northern Virginia. Pendleton would have around 44 guns and two battered brigades in the form of Lawton's and Lewis Armistead's. The commanders for both of these units were not present, having been wounded during the fighting at Antietam. That would present one problem. The other problem was that Pendleton had never before commanded infantry in the field. Despite having attended West Point, 
Pendleton had left to become an Episcopal minister. He will continue to serve in the Southern Army throughout the war, but in a more administrative capacity, probably as a result of Shepherdstown. Butler's Ford lay a little further south of the town itself. Butler's Ford was important on the way to Antietam, and it would be important in the retreat away from Antietam. High bluffs would protect the Virginia side of the river, but there would be only enough space for a majority of the 44 guns to have a good field of fire. They would be put into action on the 19th as Pleasanton's cavalry and the men of the 5th Corps would show up on the other side of the river. While the artillery would do on, sharpshooters of the 1st U.S. sharpshooters would be placed into positions along the river. These men would be supported by regiments of Charles Griffin's brigade of Morrell's division. Confederate infantry would not return fire, ordered not to do so unless the enemy forced a crossing. Unfortunately, these troops were still badly demoralized, and Pendleton shuffled them around without knowing his actual strength. So, he probably only had some 600 men total at Butler's Ford that he was now dividing. I think it is a morbid thought when we talk about Lawton's brigade specifically, seeing action in the peninsula and being one of the larger brigades, almost rivaling some divisions in terms of strength. In less than a year, they had been reduced greatly in numbers after three campaigns. Men of the 1st U.S. Sharpshooters, covered by the 4th Michigan and supported by additional infantry units, would begin a crossing of the river. Confederate infantry would have no stomach for the fight and skedaddle. Pendleton was unaware until the men came streaming past him. After a hasty withdrawal, the general would be convinced he had lost all 44 pieces of artillery, which would truly spell disaster. In reality, only four cannon had been seized by the Union infantry, who withdrew back to Maryland on the evening of the 19th. But despite the damage being relatively minimal, there was a serious problem. The Federals had a little foothold on southern soil. If they were not checked, then there could be a disaster for the strung-out Army of Northern Virginia as it escaped back into the Shenandoah Valley. Jackson would send A.P. Hill and his division to deal with the Federal advance. On the morning of the 20th of September, men from Morrell's and Sykes' divisions would move across the river for a reconnaissance in force. The Union cavalry is not present, though, which is key to the outcome of the battle. Porter was not expecting to see the Confederates under Hill advancing in force. Certainly, he did not expect the enemy to be attacking him, given the previous day's showing. Under rifle and artillery fire, he would send word for his regiments to withdraw. The regulars would do so in good order, but one of the rookie regiments, the 118th Pennsylvania, would stay, not believing the order was given in the proper chain of command. 
This regiment was known as the Corn Exchange Regiment because the Philadelphia Corn Exchange had financed their creation and given each man a $10 signing bonus. The 118th would be put to rout by the veterans of Hill's division, these men finding cover amongst the buildings of a cement factory, the ruins of which are still there at Shepherdstown today. Friendly artillery fire would prove just as deadly as that of the enemy, eventually the 118th making it back across the river, but not without suffering 269 of the 361 Union casualties on the day. Porter would hold his men on the Maryland side, and Hill was satisfied he had driven the Federals away, allowing for time on the escape for the rest of the army. Confederate losses were 30 killed and 260 wounded between the two days of fighting. There were two key events worth mentioning during the Battle of Shepherdstown or Boatler's Ford. The first is that U.S. regular Edmund Burke would receive a Medal of Honor for his role in returning across the Potomac to spike a gun left behind by the rebels. The second is that the action is going to be the first seen by the 20th Maine and their Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Chamberlain's regiment would only suffer three men wounded during the fighting, playing a small part in a smaller scale, far different than the role they will play in July of 1863, regardless of whether you believe that Chamberlain saves the Army of the Potomac on Little Round Tap or not. But that, everyone, is another story for another time. This would be the official end to hostilities for the Antietam campaign. Lee would not go back into Maryland. McClellan, as probably you could have guessed, will not pursue. Even with the conclusion of the Antietam campaign, we need to do our best to set up another. Between September 14th and 17th, there would be the siege and capture of Munfordville, Kentucky, by Confederate troops. This would be part of the invasion of Kentucky conducted by Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith. Now the theory, as we have mentioned, behind an invasion of Kentucky is very similar to the theory behind an invasion of Maryland. Gather supplies and support would be the key. If Bragg is somehow able to also destroy Buell, then it will bode well for a reconquest of Middle Tennessee. Bragg is actually unlikely given intelligence from John Hunt Morgan during Morgan's raid that we talked about a while back that there is a lot of support for the Confederates in Kentucky. So he is really hoping to bank on the additional acquisition of recruits for his army. In fact, he brings a large amount of small arms so that he can arm the populace. And we will talk about in a future episode exactly why that doesn't pan out the way he thinks it will, but he's never really going to forget the fact that John Hunt Morgan gives him this seemingly erroneous report, so he's going to hold that against him. He doesn't like folks from Kentucky also, and we're going to see how that plays out in the Battle of Stones River as well. So doesn't like folks from Kentucky, already doesn't like people from Tennessee, 
So the question probably remains, who does Braxton Bragg like, right? The rebels would move into the Bluegrass State to harass Buell's line of supply. Kirby Smith advancing from Knoxville in the eastern part of the state, while Bragg would advance relatively in the center region. September 14th would see them target Munfordville, which was a key railroad town used to supply the Army of the Ohio. Munfordville would contain some 4,000 Indiana troops under Colonel John Wilder. Now Wilder will go on to command a Union-mounted unit armed with Spencer repeating rifles later in the war. It was previously reported that the garrison was less than 2,000 men, so James Chalmers and his Mississippi Brigade would advance without orders and demand their surrender. When it was refused, an assault would seize some 283 rebel casualties. Part of the issue was that the Mississippi troops would be faced with well-placed abatis. Two Union positions, Fort Craig and a stockade, would be able to support one another. Chalmers would then wait for the rest of Bragg's army, who would arrive and place the city under siege, despite the anger at Chalmers for having acted without orders. So here's the problem, is that Munfordville is actually an extremely strong position. Any kind of delay in terms of the siege of this town, especially if these 4,000 Indiana troops are stubbornly holding out, could be disaster for the invasion. Could give the Union Army time to prepare and react. Could also give uh, Braxton Bragg the inability to link up with Kirby Smith and his wing. So they could be defeated piecemeal. So there's a lot of problems with having to assault Munfordville, notwithstanding the large amount of casualties they could potentially take. On the 17th, under a flag of truce, Wilder would enter the Confederate lines and actually seek advice from Simon Bolivar Buckner, who knew a thing or two about surrendering. Now this is interesting in many ways. The first is it's completely unorthodox. Wilder doesn't really know what to do. He is going to reach out to Buckner, and Buckner, instead of kind of telling Wilder, well, you, you know, you're the enemy, you've got to go figure it out, he's going to actually take him under his wing and really lay out the options. He's able to show Wilder the strong rebel forces and positions, which is going to convince the Union officer to surrender. Besides the 4,000 prisoners, key supplies, horses, and mules would be captured. Bragg would be able to continue in an effort to combine his army with that of Kirby Smith, burning a key railroad bridge over the Green River. Buell would concentrate at Louisville before moving out against the enemy. Now, there are two camps of thought, really, with the capture at Munfordville. The first is that Bragg might have stayed at Munfordville and then forced Ewell to attack him in the strong position, as we already talked about. But the fact that Bragg is going to abandon Munfordville entirely sort of goes to show that he's sort of making this campaign up as he goes along. There's no real objective, no real plan, exactly. On the other hand, though, there is a counter-argument 
that logistically the Confederates would not be able to support such a long stay at Munfordville. So this is probably a big reason why he's going to move on to greener pastures. Soon, and we will get to it soon enough, the armies are going to meet at a place called Perryville. In September, we will have further action in northern Mississippi at a place called Iuka. Now, in the 1860s, Iuka was a town outside of Corinth that was famous for its sulfur springs and the healing properties it presented. In 1862, it would be an encounter battle between the troops under the command of Sterling Price and the Army of the West, as well as men under the overall command of Ulysses S. Grant, but more specifically, William S. Rosecrans and his Army of the Mississippi. Rosecrans having taken over that army from John Pope. Grant had spread his army to protect the various railroads around northern Mississippi following the fall of Corinth. It would be difficult because of the Confederate guerrilla and cavalry raiding. Fortifications at Corinth had been bolstered, but if you recall, that city had a problem with potable drinking water. Therefore, it would be better for a large army to be dispersed. Confederate cavalry would therefore have an inaccurate account of troops that Grant had at his disposal, their estimates off by three times the amount he actually possessed. Operating in the area was Sterling Price, fresh from a visit to Richmond. At this point in the war, Price is still a hero from his exploits at Wilson's Creek and his performance at Pea Ridge. If old Pap had it his way, he would be leading an expedition into Missouri to take it for the Confederacy. But Jefferson Davis did not see eye to eye with Price. The Confederate president would often overlook the Western theaters, and he did not particularly like Price who, it is fair, was a tough guy to get along with. Price would be so outraged, he would offer his resignation and say he would go win victories for Missouri and not the Confederacy. Davis would respond that no one would be happier or surprised of such an event, which, in the terms of the 1860s, is a pretty sick burn. Cooler heads would prevail, Davis realizing he needed Price for the support he marshaled from the border state. The Army of the West would be idle until Braxton Bragg would come up with a purpose. With his invasion of Kentucky, though, as already mentioned, it would be important to keep the Federals occupied so that Rosecrans did not go to join and reinforce Buell. With the early reports of lesser troop numbers, then it was entirely possible Price could keep the enemy occupied, especially if he acted in concert with Earl Van Dorn. But Van Dorn was also not willing to play ball, attempting to hijack some troops meant for Price, who had been captured and released from Fort Donelson earlier in the year. He would go even further to lobby for having Price placed under his command. Van Dorn was not interested in an assault on Corinth, which was the grand plan that Price had come up with. Here was the idea. 
handle things in Mississippi, sweep north, join Bragg in Tennessee, and soon there would be Dixie playing in Missouri once again. Price would swoop in and take Iuka on the 14th of September. This was a big victory for the South, as there was neglect on part of the Union officers there, allowing for the capture of numerous stores reminiscent of Jackson and Manassas Junction earlier in the summer. At Iuka, Price would wait. He had under his command two divisions, one under the very capable but ill Henry Little, who has already been in our story here in the Trans-Mississippi. The other is under the command of Dabney Morey. Little was a Maryland native who had served in the Mexican-American War. Dabney Morey had been a member of Earl Van Dorn's staff, and like Little, had distinguished himself at Pea Ridge, earning him a command. Grant has Rosecrans in his army, as well as troops under his direct supervision, but previously under the command of EOC Ord. A plan was developed to catch Price and destroy him between the two forces. Rosecrans and his 4,500 men outnumbered the Missourians' army. A key part of the plan was that Rosecrans would move first, and then Grant, with Ord's men, would pull off the pincer move. Rosecrans was under the impression it would be Grant first, from the west, then he would hit from the south. This may have been the reasoning he was delayed in his movement. Whatever the reason, his men were not meeting their scheduled time of arrival. Grant ordered Ord to halt until he heard the sound of the fighting with Rosecrans, so Ord is not going to be joining in the coming battle. Rosecrans had two divisions, one under Charles Hamilton, the other under David S. Stanley. Charles Hamilton started his war in the east. He had commanded a division during the Siege of Yorktown, eventually being relieved and replaced by Kearney. McClellan would write that he is not fit to command. Before the end of the war, Hamilton will resign and return to Wisconsin. Hamilton also does not like Grant, and he's going to really voice that opinion in 1863, which is directly leading up to his resignation. Stanley will have Maurer and Fuller under his command, while Hamilton will have Sanborn and Sullivan. Joseph Maurer was nicknamed the Wolf by his troops. The New Englander had served as a private in the war with Mexico. He will continue to command troops throughout the war. John Fuller was born in England before moving to America as a child. He would work in a bookstore in Utica before moving to Ohio. He too will command throughout the conflict, returning to Toledo at war's end. Sanborn had moved to Minnesota and had commanded the 4th Minnesota before being promoted to brigade command. He will do well during Price's raid into Missouri. John Sullivan was a veteran already, having served in western Virginia, but his career will fizzle out before the final surrender. On September 19th, the lead elements of the Army of Mississippi would make contact with Confederate cavalry. Sanborn's men would drive away the rebel horsemen, but Price would soon respond with infantry, and most likely some of the best he had in Herbert's brigade. 
you remember Louis Hebert from the other battles of the Trans-Mississippi. Hebert would have some converted cavalrymen who would ask if they needed to fix bayonets to the exasperated Louisiana native, showing the hodgepodge nature of the rebel forces. Sandbridge Brigade would set up on a ridge, deploying the 11th Ohio Artillery to duel with the enemy pieces. It was a position where two roads, the Jacinto and the Mill Road, met. Despite their mixed composition, Hebert's men were mostly veterans as compared with the regiments who were supporting the Federal cannon. There were two regiments from Arkansas who had combined due to their battle losses. With the rebel assault on the ridge, all of the Federal regiments would be thrown back but one in Sanborn's brigade. Sullivan's brigade was disorganized and would not be able to provide immediate support. Hebert's mixed regiments would gain the ridge and the Union guns, even despite a bayonet charge by the 5th Iowa. Of the 54 men of the 11th Ohio Artillery, 46 would become casualties, the artillerymen fighting to the very last for their guns. Hand-to-hand fighting erupted on the line in several places, showing the ferocity of the battle. So, with Hebert's men finally having gained the ridge, this would be exactly the right time for Confederate reinforcements. But they did not come. Darkness was approaching, but more importantly, General Little would fall at the exact wrong time. While conferring with his superior, a ball would pass below the arm of Price and below General Little's eye and lodge into the back of his head, killing him instantly. Price would become extremely distraught by the loss of his good friend Little, but he was able to pass command of the division to Hebert. But Hebert was not interested in taking command of the division. He was already occupied by the operations of his brigade. Because of this, there would be no coordinated push by the rebels. In the darkness, there would be confusion as the only units moving in support were veering off away from the ridge and into other areas of the line. There was a half-hearted attempt by men from John Martin's brigade, but it was also not coordinated and ended up veering off in a different direction. In the darkness, the two troops would bed down on the field and trade shots at noises in the dark. After the action on the 19th, Price was fully prepared to continue the attack and finish off Rosecrans. By that point, though, Ward was aware and was on his way. Price was still grieving the loss of his friend Little. In fact, it's reported that for much of the evening, Price is sort of out of it and is in a daze because he's sort of in a state of shock. The fellow officers, though, would advise for a withdrawal. That had actually been the plan, oddly enough. Confederate forces were aware of the two armies attempting to converge. In fact, Ord had sent a message demanding the surrender of Price. Price decided that he would need to combine his army with that of Earl Van Dorn for better chances against the Federals. Officers gathered would advise for a retreat. Confederates had been shifted to meet Rosecrans, so Ord would be moving relatively unopposed against them, 
wisely, Price would concede and order their retreat. Despite having captured the guns from the 11th Ohio, the rebel infantry had no horses to pull them. They were forced to spike the weapons and leave their prizes on the field. This is not going to go over very well to the overall morale of Price's army. Price was successful in escape as Rosecrans did not hear from Grant in regards to his orders on a pursuit. Once combined with Ord's men, he would ask why the other officer had left him in the lurch. It was a fair question. Ord was instructed to move on Ayuko once he heard the sounds of battle. The sometimes difficult Ord, especially when faced with officers he found incompetent, would claim not to have heard the fighting. Now, was this a case of acoustic shadow? We've had similar scenarios where officers are not able to hear the sounds of fighting. Wilson's Creek is one example. We talked about that. And coming up here in Perryville, there's going to be another great example of an acoustic shadow. But in this scenario, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. The Battle of Ayuka would end after the successful retreat on the 20th. Casualties were 700 for the Confederates, with 782 for the Federals. Sandbird's brigade suffered the most casualties on the day. Price had successfully escaped, and he is going to combine with Van Doren for one more gasp of action in Mississippi. We can go ahead and stop there for now. We have had a busy episode. The Antietam campaign is over with the Battle of Shepherdstown. We are now getting into the Perryville campaign, also known as the Heartland campaign. Lastly, we fought the Battle of Iuka in northern Mississippi, which was a bid to keep Union reinforcements from reaching Buell in Kentucky. Next week, we will head there and check in. We will also spend some time in Missouri and drop in at Texas for an update there. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.